and this is Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. I am super excited for this week's guest. It's actor W. Earl Brown. Now, Earl, probably best known for portraying Cameron Diaz's brother Warren in There's Something About Mary, which I can't believe it's celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. It's one of the funniest movies ever made. Earl talks about how he landed the iconic role of Warren, and he gives us an update about the whereabouts of Magda's boobs. Earl's other iconic role is playing Al Swearingen's right-hand man, Dan Doherty, on Deadwood, which all Deadwood fans are super excited for the movie coming out next year. Earl gives us an update. The first half of the interview is all Deadwood, so it's about the fight, the iconic fight in season three. He talks about the relationship with him and Jewel, and as well as writing for the show. Other roles, he, he was in Scream, New Nightmare, ton of guest starring work for television we talk about one from in particular seinfeld and we even talk project alf earl super nice guy here's my conversation and helping me relive my youth today is w earl brown earl how are you today i'm good it is a good day yeah it's always a good day we can get up right <laughs> yeah well well some of them yeah, true, <laughs> true, true. But uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for joining us. Uh, yeah, before we look back, um, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's excited about uh, the Deadwood movie. Can you uh, give us any updates? Um, wrap production on Friday. We actually had the wrap party last night. It comes out in May. Um, the only thing that I'm allowed to tell, I, I guess, is it, it's it's a standalone film. It takes place ten years after the the cessation of the series right. um, and it's it's a standalone story that contains most of all the major characters oh, awesome yeah I, I unfortunately you know uh, Powers Booth you know casting but and Rick, Ricky Jay who in the show is you know gone but um, everyone else is back right Ricky Ricky passed and yeah. uh, Ralph Richardson who played awesome. Richardson on the show Oh, that's um, right, yeah. He passed away. Also, of of the characters, there's a there are a few more actors. Um, Jeff Cahill, who played Cropier, which that character okay. was killed off. Jeff passed right. away, and Aubrey Morris, who played um, uh, uh, one of the actors, the elder actor. So, yeah, oh, I, I, I I can and and there were a whole whole list of background because we had the, a lot of the same team were the background actors. And right. they all stayed in touch. Not as much to everyone, from you know the, the the executive producers down to the background people that being involved in telling that story held a very special part in all of our lives. And um, and the, the the background crew, that core group, they've stayed in touch over the years. And some of them were able to come back and and be in the film. Oh, that that's awesome. I'm I'm sure. I don't want you to give anything away, but if this does well. Could there be more movies, or is this it? This is all wrapped up in a nice two hours. <laughs> never say never. But right. <laughs> I when when the series stopped, it's it didn't end. It stopped, and right. there's a vast difference in those two things. Uh, I couldn't let it go. It it meant too much, and it was I was too blindsided by it. It it had been my life. I was on the writing staff when Ricky. Jay left after season one. Right. I got Ricky's job in the writer's trailer. Okay. I, I took that chair, or it was offered to me, and I accepted. Um, so, you know, it was my life 24-7, and I was blissfully unaware of the axe hanging over our head those last several months of production. 
So when I got that phone call, it was uh, it was completely out of the blue, and I I was dumbfounded. I couldn't believe it. And hence, I I kept a notepad next to my phone, and I thought it had just been a year. It had to be more than that because I was talking with Tim about it. Um, because I remember writing on the notepad of who was doing what. And I remember writing Tim, <laughs> right. lawman, uh, uh, a, uh, a, a federal cop in Kentucky. Oh, just or, or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was called Lawman Initially, okay. and then the title was changed because right. of the Seagal reality show. Oh, okay. Um, and then Anna, some meth show in ABQ, I think, was my, my notation for that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which was Breaking Bad. Right. Um, anyway, I... I you know, I was trying to keep track of everyone because I I just couldn't come to terms with the fact that something so special and doing so well would just suddenly cease. Um, in regards to this film, it was a 12-year dream come true for all of us. And I knew that, you know, this is a, a standalone story. And if this is it, then I can accept that and move forward. Um, that being said, if it does really well, who knows? It's it, anything's possible, right? Yeah, and I know all the fans, including myself, are, are super psyched. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, I could HBO obviously had some great shows. You know, the the best characters. You know, you mentioned Tony Soprano, but I mean, Al Sorensen. I mean, he's probably top of the heap for all HBO characters. Oh yeah, yep. And it was the perfect role with the perfect actor to play it. Um. And it all came together at the right time. Right. And um, there are a couple, like, fights in, like, TV and movie history. I think they live between Rowdy Piper and uh, uh, Keith Davis is probably the best movie fight. But your fight with the captain, Alan Graff, is mm-hmm. by far the best fight in television history. <laughs> well, thank you. You're very welcome. Dan, Dan Minahan, who directed that episode, is the director of the film that we just finished. Oh, nice. So... Yeah. yeah, how much how much fun, how painful was that whole shoot for that fight? Well, that I I've told the story on on the 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 voiceover extras on the DVD, but the, the, it, it all came about uh, David had told me David Milch about a about a month before. He said, "Where this is leading is that uh, eventually um you and Hurst's man the captain are going to be in a fight to the death." Right, and uh, it's going to look like uh, you're going to die, but at the last second, the tables turn, you kill the captain. We're going to get there. So that, first of all, got my fat ass on the treadmill to try to get in some similar <laughs> shape. Right. Um, and then I had written in season uh, two this story called Son of a Bitch, which was based on something that occurred in my family. My grandfather would not allow anyone to call him that word because that's defaming my mama, and nobody right. <laughs> is allowed to defame my mama, which my mother, his daughter, said was when I told her that, she went, well, that's ironic, because if there was ever a bitch that walked the planet, it was my grandmother. <laughs> but um, uh, 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 my mother's first husband had called him that, and uh, my grandfather hit him so hard that his eyeball popped out of his skull. Oh, wow. Um, and then my nine-year-old uncle, who at that at that point was nine years old, stopped him from killing him. Um, so that I wrote a story using Doherty and Soapy the soap seller that, you know, he's throwing Soapy out of the gym and Soapy calls Dan that and Dan beats Soapy to death. And But we never used it. So it kind of sat on the shelf 
and uh, we we rolled around to the fight the next season, and we, we started to to uh, move toward production on it. And Dave brought me Al Graff, who played the captain, uh, who was our original stunt coordinator. Um, he left the show to go. He's a football specialist. He does all football and movies because he played pro ball. Right. Um, and he left us to go do Friday Night Lights, the movie. Oh. And uh, um, uh, Mike Watson took over as stunt coordinator. So it was me and Graff and Mike Watson, Dan Minahan, um, and Milch. And, and Milch said, all right, you have three days to create this fight. Um, I have three rules. Number one, I want it to be completely realistic. I don't want any big cowboy roundhouses flying <laughs> through plate glass bullshit. None of that. Um, number two, I want every time the audience thinks it's going to ebb, I want it to escalate. Uh, I want the audience not to be able to draw a fucking breath for five minutes. And uh, number three, I want something I've never seen before. So um, make it up. So we commenced to um, suggest things and try them. Like Dan, the director, said, we've got to land in the meat market at some point. This is such a great set, and we've never been here in the butcher area. Right. Uh, so landing among that meat. And then I said, yeah, it's like two cavemen. He's got to bite me and then try to drown me in horse piss. So we're just <laughs> we're trying all of this stuff. And at the end of the day, Dave would come down and go, where are we now? Let's see. The only thing that Dave nullified is the, the opening roll when we crash into each other and then start grappling and rolling down the street. We had it going underneath a moving horse. And Dave said, well, that's uh, – that's a little cliche. Plus, it'd be too dangerous. It'll take too long to shoot that. But so, if you notice, there's a shot between horses' legs as right. the, as the camera moves. Um, but that was the only thing that we had attempted that Milt said no to. Well, we still didn't have an ending. And, and Dave came to me at the end of the second day. And he said, "I don't know," because we'd already gotten into the uh, the the meat market, and then with him starting to drown me in mud and looking up to hers. Yeah. And we didn't know how we were going to come out of it. And Dave said, you know, I went back to that thing you wrote last season, and um, you're being overpowered. The way it was created, that won't play. And then there was, without naming names, there was an advisor on the show who was an old-time rodeo cowboy, and he was an enforcer in Vegas for an unnamed gambling casino owner. Um, and his thing was he used to take people's eyeballs. And he would hold – he was a huge man, and he would hold people down, and he would use his thumb. Um, and so that uh, – David had absorbed some stories that were told by that man. And he said, you know, and that, the, the thing with uh, with him, that won't work because, again, you're being overpowered. I don't know how we're going to get out of this. So um, I play poker with a, a group of mostly musicians. Um, at Jerry Cantrell's house, the guitarist okay. of the house. Yeah. Jerry, Jerry's a, a dear friend of mine. Uh, anyway, we were playing, and he was asking about Deadwood. What do you guys have? Tell him what's going on. And he said, that happened to my brother Dave. I said, what? He goes, David was in a biker bar in Oklahoma. He goes, he got in a fight. This guy had Dave on top of the pool table. He had him by the ears, and he was cracking his skull against the slate. Oh, wow. And he said, Dave's in a panic. He was afraid, like, if I pass out, he'll probably kill me. And he said he was just trying to push the guy off of him, and he felt the finger hit soft tissue, and he just knew instinctively that that's an eyeball. And he jammed his finger in the guy's skull and uh, and lived. <laughs> that end of fight. 
So the next day we go to work and I went, Dave, 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 I got an ending. I got an ending. How about this? And I lay it Dave said, that will work. That's it. That's our ending. So that's how it came about. Yeah, no, it, it was it was great. You guys definitely did a fantastic job. But um, one relationship you had in the show besides with Al, of course, was with uh, Jewel, played by mm-hmm. Jerry Jewel, um, best known from Facts of Life, you know, Blair's cousin. Um, how did she get cast, and what made that, like, you know, relationship so, like, dynamic? Well, it, with with her casting, she tells the story in her book. Um, um, she wrote a memoir a few years ago about growing up and, getting into comedy, and she has a whole chapter on Deadwood. Um, But the story behind her casting, she had a back surgery, and she said, I was in horrible pain. And she said, I was was at the the drugstore getting my pain medicine filled. I said, I'm I'm just desperate to get something to dull this. She said, I'm standing there waiting. And said, he, Dave approaches me. She didn't know him. She never met him. He said, aren't aren't you an an actress? comedian and she said yeah and he said, i'm david milch uh creator and i'm, I'm doing this uh western for uh for hbo would that uh, would you be interested in um in uh, possibly being on the show <laughs> jerry said i looked at him and i said um it might come as a surprise david but i'm not really good on a horse this <laughs> 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 uh, was the birth of jewel and her smart mouth oh, yeah. um I think Dave, in that instant, uh, Dave, he absorbed everything around him. He he, he told me, he, you know, as as a writer, you're a vessel. Said stories have a way of telling themselves, and when they're rooted in truth, that story will come through you. What you have to do is open your ears and open your spirit, and let that story flow. So things, would, ideas would come to him in the moment, and I've never spoken to him personally about Jerry's situation but i'm sure knowing him he saw her oh my god to have you know and that was the ingenious part of the creation of that character just in his writing of of swearingen in the way that he views the world you know uh, the world doesn't end in beatings or i'm paraphrasing it here the world ends when you're dead until then you stand it like a man pain or suffering or beatings don't end the world world ends when you're dead Stand it like a man and give some back. Well, that's the way Swearingen views the world. He actually cares about all of those people around him. He cares about this community that's forming. And in his view of the world, that's a massive weakness. That is his Achilles heel. So he has to keep it hidden. Now, he bought, you know, he would go to the orphanage where he was raised and where his brother died, and he would buy these young girls to bring out West and to, and to make prostitutes. So he goes and he sees the suffering of, of Jewel, and he, he sees in that his brother, you know, his brother's suffering. So he buys her, knowing she's not going to be a use to him as a prostitute. Right. And he'll put her to cleaning stuff. But he can't admit the fact that I care. I don't want to see another human being suffer. He can't admit that. So what he does to hide it is he berates her at every turn. You know, can you not drag that fucking leg, you know, (laughs) constantly? But the ingenious part of it is, instead of absorbing it into this, oh, woe is me, Jewel, she recognizes in Al. She recognizes why he is the way he is. And she recognizes his true being. So her response, she throws it right back at him. 
Yeah. You know, she don't take his shit. She stands up to him. So, you know, that's that, that's the genius of David's writing. There are so many layers to every scene and to every character. That's why the show bears repeat viewing, because you're always picking up something new um, and some shading that you, you hadn't seen before. So, um, so yeah, that that's right. how Jewel came to be, and yeah. she is in the movie. Oh, good, good. Now, how much writing experience did you have before they brought you or David brought you for the team? Um, I had I've always – I was the kid who was always drawing and writing and okay. all of that. I played sports um, as, a, as a kid, but, you know, the, the art stuff was always more my calling. So I've always done it. I had no real professional writing experience. Right. Um, we, the way it came about, I think, in the pilot, I improvised a line, which is a huge no-no in David's. <laughs> you follow right. David's punctuation because it's written in meter. Okay. And he's, he is specific. I had guest starred on NYPD Blue years ago, and I had a line where I says to Sipowitz, good, because I think I'm going to be looking for a new job. And I said in one take, I went, good, because I think I might be looking for a new job. And the script supervisor comes over to me, and she went, uh, you, you got that wrong. What? She <laughs> goes, no, it's I gonna, not might, two syllables, gonna. And also, you missed a comma in this line. Wow. So <laughs> that's when I realized, we're talking syllables. Right. Gonna is two syllables, might is one. Oh, shit, he's writing in meter. And so coming into the pilot of, of Deadwood, it's the line where Star and Bullock first come into town, and, and I say, $5 a week, pay little Mr. Swearingen at the gym. And he says, where's that? And I'm supposed to say, you'll find it. And in one take, I went, you'll find it. Everybody does. <laughs> and turn and walk away. So cut, Milch walks over me. He says, well, I uh, guess I'm going to have to call WGA. I said, what? He goes, get an adjudication over who wrote this fucking thing, me or you. What the fuck did you say? <laughs> and my brain is going, oh shit, oh man. And I'm, I'm I said, you, uh, you, you'll pay those rent. You'll, you'll find it. Everybody does. Hmm. It's a great turn of phrase. That, that's a great turn of phrase. Uh, script, come over. Uh, write this down. Put this in a script. Tell her what you said. Never quote me on this because I'll fucking deny it. But that, uh, <laughs> that, that works. So I have often thought that that was kind of the seed of him placing trust in me. Okay. Um, later in the se in season one, out of the blue, he comes up to me and he says, do you write? Yes. He goes, all right, I have something I want you to read. Come to my trailer, pick it up. And it, it was, um, um, God, it's like 200 pages, transcribed lecture. It was a five-hour lecture he gave at Yale oh, wow. okay. about his theory of writing. And it was transcribed exactly the way he speaks, with the ahs and the ums and the vocalized pauses. <laughs> so I um, I read it, and there were a few exercises he had recommended to the writing students. I didn't do those, but I read the, the lectures. He came up to me days later. He said, uh, you read that thing I gave you? Yeah, I read it. You read it all? I said, yeah, I read it all. I didn't do the writing exercises, but I read it. All right, my turn. I want to see something you've written. So I had a short story. I gave him one of these short stories I'd written. The very next day, he hands it back to me. He goes, that's not bad. That's not bad at all. Have you ever written a script? I said, well, actually, uh, yeah, I have a first draft of something. 
And I had gotten the rights with the director, Shane Taylor, for the book Provinces of Night, a William Gay novel. And we eventually got it made, the movie Bloodworth that Sony released. But the first draft of it, and it was the first time I I had adapted a novel. Um, So I gave Dave that script, and I got his notes on the script. I think this element might work, this blah, blah, blah. Um, And he said, next season, um, I want you to come to the writer's trailer. I want you to come over and join us um, and see what you can contribute. And at that point, he and Ricky, there was an issue with Ricky's schedule. He was doing a play with Mamet. um, And and because of the way Dead would work, you had to be a veil every day to work. You would get a call the night before if they need you. So it was putting Ricky behind the eight ball um, with this play that he had committed to. So Ricky ended up leaving Deadwood, um, and um, when when he did, David said, "All right, next season you're, you're taking that chair." So uh, with some prodding, uh, because I was intimidated, to be honest, right. um, intimidated by his intellect. Um, it, the songwriter Steve Earle is the one who prodded me. Man, this is a writer's writer. You don't get chances like this in life. It's like when I met Towns Van Zandt. I knew oh. that man can teach me, man. That man can teach you. So the, it was with the kick in the ass from Steve that I I told Davis, and I, I will, I'm, I'm taking you up on the offer. So that's how I ended up in the writer's trailer for two years. Oh, nice. Did you uh, have any hand in writing the movie? Oh, the film, this film? No. Uh-uh. Yeah. Okay. He had <clears throat> two years ago I met him for lunch. He, he's worked on this for about two and a half years. Okay. And we met for lunch, and he just wanted to read some scenes to me, some stuff that he had. Um, it wasn't a, uh, you know, he just wanted a sounding board. So no, I, I con- didn't contribute to the film. Uh, years ago, when about uh, four years after the film ended, five, his deal was coming up. The series Luck was was about to come on the air, and so there was a lot of positivity, ironically. Right. Um, and he was wanting to revisit the idea of the two Deadwood movies that were offered. And we did have lunch then twice to, to talk about story ideas. Um, and not, neither of those things ever came to fruition. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, this, this story jumps ahead a decade. So um, I think Regina Corrado worked with him. I know she did. Um, but uh, that's the only writer I know that was there in the room. It was all Dave. Right. Okay. With an now, assist from Regina. Okay. But yeah. All right. And you've been in so many like guest starring roles in, in shows. A lot of my favorite shows: Justified, Base Motel, Rectify. Uh, but of course, Seinfeld. You know, playing Al Michi. Um What what uh what was your experience like working on that show? Oh, Seinfeld. Yeah. Well, that was one. That was the first time I found myself on a show that I was a rabid fan of. Okay. And it completely altered my viewing of the show after the experience of doing it. Right. Um, so it made me trepidation of like, well, I don't want to be on my favorite shows because I don't want to mess with the experience of watching them. Um, but that was one. It was uh, it was kind of difficult to be honest. Okay. Um, <laughs> I had been I'd been in for several characters over the course of the year. So I think that was my third or fourth audition for different okay. characters, uh, and I got cast. And uh, in the course of the week, it, the, the woman that was the guest star on the show, George's girlfriend, uh, they fired the woman who was playing it, and they replaced her over the okay. weekend. And the, so we come in Monday morning. We're going to film on Tuesday. 
And this woman's gone. She's been replaced. Now, she, she was a stand-up comic who knew them from back in the New York days. So this was a someone they'd known for years. Right. Me, they meaning Jerry and, uh, Jerry and Larry. Larry David. Right. So we go to tape. You know, it's one big scene at the top of the bus, at the top of the show on a bus. Yeah. I set into motion the A and B story with Jerry and with George, um, their, their encounter with me. And um, <clears throat> so we go to film it. And I had seen Larry the entire time that that we'd been in rehearsal. He just stayed out of the way. So he comes in, and uh, we're going to rehearse it. And then we're going to get on the bus. They're going to move the bus in, and we're going to pre-film it before the audience comes in. So the idea is we've pre-filmed it. When the audience gets there, we're going to say, okay, this opening scene takes place on a bus. Imagine this is a bus, and we would recreate it to get the audience's reaction. Right. You know. Um, so we're rehearsing, <clears throat> and Larry comes up to me, and he says, uh, Earl, Earl, Earl. Yeah. Uh, this scene, uh, this scene, it's uh, it's, it's um not working okay <laughs> so they're bringing the bus into the soundstage to light it <clears throat> an actual bus and he says uh, let's well they're lighting let's uh, let's go down here and let's let's, let's uh, read it i'll be george and jerry you be al so we do the scene we do it like four or five times and he had this habit he would shake his head ever so slightly no <laughs> right and he says uh uh okay um let's let, let, switch you be George and Jerry, I'll be Al. Okay. <laughs> so we do it. All right, switch back, switch back. The head starts shaking no again. And I'm I'm like, God damn it, Larry. I, I, mean, I mean, what's – I mean, this – I think in terms of, of like a dramatist, of beats and intentions. Right. You know, <clears throat> and that's the way I think of things being structured. And that's the way I approach things as an actor. And I said, you know, like this opening beat here at the top of the scene, you know, the, the, the intention of the beat, is, I, I, I'm not thinking, and he has this incredulous look on his face. And that's when it dawns on me. He doesn't think like a dramatist. He thinks strictly in terms of comic rhythm. And I said, oh, fuck it. Let's do it. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. George and Jerry, I'll be out. So I basically impersonate Larry doing the thing. <laughs> it was that. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Yeah, let's do that. So we're going down to the bus. They call us. And I'm thinking, fuck, man, I'm going to get fucking fired and replaced <laughs> right right in the middle right. of the scene. So I get on the bus. They had lit it. I was too tall. I had to squat. On camera, it looks normal with the way okay. it's framed. Right. But I'm actually bent at the knees and squatted down. Okay. And my chin is up in the air. I'm looking down my nose at George and Jerry. Again, in the frame, looks normal. But for me, not normal at all. And the light is only about a foot from my face, so I'm sweating my ass off. We're getting ready to shoot. Larry has gone and put on the cape and put himself in the scene as an extra. He's the man in the cape. Right, right. And he's sitting right at my elbow. So George and Jerry are on the, the outward-facing seat. Um, and the man in the cape is at my elbow. And as we start to film the damn scene, I can see Larry's head shaking no as we're filming it <laughs> and, uh, so it wasn't the most pleasant situation right and i'm still thinking i'm gonna be fired i'm gonna be replaced and they're gonna reshoot it and so they're finishing the rehearsal before they let the audience in and i'm sitting up in the bleachers beating myself up for 15 to 30 minutes and i i then i see larry 
And there's a, he called, he, 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 Jason, 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 come over here. Well, I'm sitting right above them. They don't notice that I'm there. Right. And Larry's like, that, 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 that beat, when you enter the scene with, with that motion, I just don't think that, I just don't. And I recognize in Larry, like, he is that neurotic about everything, about every aspect. Right. And Jason's like, yeah, Larry, okay, yeah, okay, I get it. And, you know, it's it's like water off a duck's back. Jason has no problem. Absorb. And then I realize, oh, it's not me. It's that Larry's that about all aspects of this show. So uh, that was where I was able to, like, okay, whew, I think I'm safe. I'm okay. Um but uh, then every time I would watch the show after that, I, I would recall the man in the cape shaking his head no uh, as I'm trying to do my best. But uh, but yeah, that was and, and still. I'm, I'm, but I'm very proud. I mean, that's that's a an all time classic show um, oh, yeah. to have to have been a part of that. Um, and uh, so yeah, I, I count it as as one in the plus column, even oh, though yeah. it was difficult. It's in the plus column. Right. Yeah, the, the finished product was was good, so you should be proud about that, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a couple other ones. Uh, I'm sure you get asked about this movie a, a lot. Project Alpha. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody posted a screen capture from that on social media a year or so ago. My only thought was, damn, I was skinny and not bad looking. Right. <laughs> what the fuck happened? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was actually... Um, gosh, I think, I think Junie Lowry Johnson cast that movie. I think she cast Deadwood. So right. that was, yeah. that would have been the very first gig I ever had out of Junie's office would have been the Alf movie. Right. So, um, so yeah, plus, plus column. Yeah. It's, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure it still holds up. I haven't seen it in years. <laughs> Actually, it was clever as could be, <laughs> you know, the show yeah. was clever. It was a silly yeah. concept on the surface. Yeah. Uh, but the writing of the show was pretty damn clever. Yeah, it was. It really was, definitely. But uh, one of my uh, favorite movies, uh, my wife's favorite movie, one of them is Scream. And uh, yeah. I have two kids, a 13 and 8-year-olds, and she showed them Scream. Actually, I don't know why. She showed them Scream 3 first for some reason. It was on, and my son had a whole bunch of questions. So then one night she put on Scream, and your death freaked my son out. It was so funny. <laughs> Wes was the first person out here that really took me under wing. Right. The first, like, marquee name, you know, somebody that I knew. Um, and that all came about with uh, 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 Nightmare, New Nightmare. Oh, New Nightmare, yeah. Um, I, I had come out here. I, I started in Chicago, and I kind of – I after a few years, I had hit the glass ceiling of career-wise there. Okay. And I was with an agency at the time that had offices in Chicago and out here. And they would send a half dozen or so actors that were doing well in Chicago. They would send them out to test the waters of Los Angeles. Well, I was one of those actors in 1993. Um, I rented a room from one of the agents that worked at that place, rented a room in her house. And I got out here, and i have been here two weeks, and I got a TV pilot in New Orleans. Okay. Um, and it was the casting director of that pilot. And I, then I, I went to New Orleans, and I did it. I came back to Los Angeles. I got cast in a TV movie. Um, it was a supporting role, like four scenes or something, nothing huge, but still. And I called my wife, and I'm, we have to move out here. This is easy. This is just <laughs> constant. Right. So then the, the pilot did not go to series. Um, the movie came and went, and we'd moved, and it was like starting all over again. 
Um, you know, and I wasn't the, the Chicago stage actor coming out. I was just another damned actor in Hollywood, you know. Um, well, the casting director, Gary Zuckerbrod, who did that pilot, was working on this Wes Craven movie. And I love, and I still, Nightmare on Elm Street, Wes's original, is ingenious. It's yeah. one of my favorite films, not just horror films, films, okay. because there, there are ideas at play. Um, and, and there's levels to it. And I thought the sequels were, were awful. <laughs> I, I hated what they did with Freddy Krueger. You know, right. he became just the wise cracking villain. Of course. Um, so I, they said, well, Gary is doing this new Wes Craven film. There's a role. It's one scene, but it's a pretty good scene. They, they want to see you for it. The script is not available. You have to go in early and read the script. So it's super secretive, right? Well, I get there, and on the door it said Nightmare 7. And I thought, oh, shit. <laughs> I did not know. At that point, I didn't know. Wes did not have anything to do with the sequels, right. except for Dr Dream Warriors he was executive producer on. So I think he did have a, a thumbprint on that movie. Uh, but overall, what, what happened to Freddy Krueger, Wes had nothing to do with because the you know New Line owned the rights, yeah. and they did what they wanted with it. Um, which was make a, a millions and millions of dollars in profit. So I'm there since Nightmare 7. I'm like, oh, shit, I don't want to be in a Nightmare movie. God, no. And then I, I sat to read the script. The script was ingenious. I mean, I don't know if you remember the film. It was yeah, the film it was really about good. itself. Right. You know, it, it was the first, like, meta-horror film. Um, um, so I'm, I'm reading it now. Well, I go into audition, and the audition, to be honest, wasn't very good. I didn't think – I very good at all but it was gary i think that pushed for me like you really should cast this guy so i got the gig and we filmed we were filming in a morgue in a closed down hospital here in la and when i finished that night i'm in the honey wagon you know which is the little dressing room trailer which is it's basically a closet with a toilet in it that you change clothes okay <laughs> um, so i'm in the honey wagon um and i'm, I'm getting ready to go home there's a knock on the door and it's like two in the morning. Oh, it's Wes. And he said, I just, Gary really pushed for you. I'm so happy I hired you. I, you really, so he said, he gave me his number. He, and, and he said, stay in touch. I want, I want to do something together in the future. So um, we, you know, I think I called him once. And then lo and behold, when he was doing Night, or Vampire in Brooklyn, um, yeah. they had brought me in. It's a long story short. I did Vampire, and then that led to Scream. Um, and Scream was one of those that was um, uh, both that and There's Something About Mary were, were studio films in that we, we had enough of a budget that you didn't have to cut every corner, but they weren't big budget films. You know, so and, – and I had just the greatest time making both of those movies. And then – you know, both of them came out of nowhere and were these, you know, they, they changed the landscape of Hollywood, the success of both those films. So they hold a special place. Right, yeah, I mean, Scream, I mean, you know, they kind of rejuvenated the whole horror, oh, horror yeah. scene, absolutely, in the sequels as well. I think that's a TV show. But you mentioned Mary, um, Twenty, I can't believe it's 20 years already this year, yeah. but it's probably the last, Best comedy. I mean, it's, they don't really make good comedies now, and that one is Fairly Brothers are geniuses. Um, 
I just interviewed Richard Tyson, and he had you know a small role in that movie as well. Yeah. Uh, how did how did you get cast for that? And like, how much like preparation did you actually have? You know, well, Trey Warren. That was kind of one of those kismet things. Um, I had um, I had just signed with my first manager, and, and Lynn and I had been working together for about six months or so, and she handles and still handles Vigo Mortensen. Okay. Um, and so she had access to material because of Vigo's. I was with a small agency at that point. Um, and um, so I was doing a miniseries for CBS called Bella Mafia. And Jennifer Tilly and I were husband and wife in the thing. And it was really kind of overwritten melodrama. Right. And we played our scenes kind of funny. Like we, we, we tried to find the humor in it. And there was a camera assistant, Gary Yoshiba, who had worked on all three Wes Craven films. Mark Irwin shot those three films. And Gary was his first camera assistant. And Gary was hiring out on second camera on this miniseries. And after one scene, everybody's laughing, and Yoshiba comes up to me, and he goes, man, you're funny. I've never really seen you do comedy. We, Mark is hired. We're going to do this new Fairly Brothers movie, because we did their first two. And... It's the funniest script I've ever read. It's called There's Something About Mary. You should check it out because you're funny. <laughs> so that's the first I hear of it. Well, I used to go to Bally's Health Club in Studio City, and I'm on the Stairmaster, and the Stairmaster next to me, Lynn Shea, gets on the Stairmaster. Oh, okay. And I'm like, oh, hey. We'd never met before. And I said, we have a mutual friend, Wes Craven. Oh, Wes, because, you know, Robert Shea, her brother, ran New Line. Okay. And that's how, you know, she did some some of Wes's movies. And so we're chatting with Wes. And of course, actors, what are you doing now? And, and I said, I'm doing this, this miniseries for CBS about you. And she goes, well, I'm about to start. I swear to God, it's the funniest script I've ever read. Did you ever see Kingpin? So of course I saw Kingpin. She goes, well, it's those brothers, the Fairleys. They're doing this movie called There's Something About Mary. It's the funniest. So two people in the course of a couple of days have mentioned this project I've never heard of to me. Right. So I call my manager, and I said, could you get me a copy of this script? So through Vigo's agents at CAA, I think that's where he was at the time, she gets me the script. I read it, and I'm like, oh, my, I mean, I'm laughing out loud reading the <laughs> script. And the role of Warren, there wasn't a lot on the page, you know, as far as number of lines yeah. or significant. But there, I just knew there's something here. There's something in this. Well, the agents I were with, couldn't get me an audition. They did not have a, a, a working relationship with this casting director. So I was a part of an improv group, and we would get together Amy Pete's house. Amy and I had gone to theater school together in Chicago, and she was, a, it still remains, a, a quite successful sitcom actress, uh, but she was on Carolina in the City at that right, point. Right. And we would all gather, and it was all working actors. On Sundays, we would gather at her house and play improv games. And it was just for fun. We weren't creating a show. We weren't creating a repertory company. It's just let's get together and play viola spolin games. Well, Rob Moran, who was Richard's partner, the detective, Cravoy yeah. and Stabler, well, he was part of it. And I kept thinking, I know him because most of us were Chicago guys. And I thought, i, I got to know him. He's got to know Chicago. Well, I rewatched Kingpin and Dumb and Dumber 
I'm like, oh, fuck, he's in both their movies. Yeah, yeah. So that Sunday, I, I, I said, Sandy, don't worry, I recognize you. You're Stanley, the evil bowler. Exactly. And we get a yeah. laugh out of it. And um, and I said, so you know the family? He goes, oh, I grew up in Rhode Island. I've known them really since I was a teenager. And I said, yeah, man, because I'm, I'm trying to get in on their new movie. Before I even finished the sentence, he went, Warren, are you, are, are you interested in playing Warren? Because they can't find anybody. They've seen a bunch of people. They can't find anybody right. I said, yeah, that's actually the part. And I said, you know, I'm trying to get in the room. He goes, well, I'm having dinner with Bobby tonight. I'll talk to, I'll talk to him. So he calls me that night. He goes, they want to see you. Have your agents called, casting director, blah, blah, blah. So two days later, I'm in there. I just knew instinctively that you to make the comedy work, you had to play it straight. You right. couldn't goof it up. You couldn't. You know, play it farcical or over the top because, A, it won't be funny, and, B, the audience is going to hate you because you're making commentary on this character instead right. of playing an honest character. So I just played it straight. And there's a room full of people. There are like eight people or so. And so I do it, and, like, I can tell, oh, a good buzz. And I left. I, hey, man, so thanks. You know, Rob, I'm so glad Rob them. So I leave. Days later, they said, they want to see you again. They want you to come back. So the only thing in that course of that time, I was Christmas shopping with my wife. And um, there was sitting outside in a department store dressing room, there was a girl, her sister and mom were trying on clothes, and she was sitting there next to me, and, and uh, she had downs. She's sitting there, and I noticed she turned her head like it was on a ball pivot instead of just turning her head. Right. Um, and that's the only thing I noticed. Like, oh, I never – that's a physicality that I'd never – so I purposely did that. I'm like, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that in that audition, just physically make it work different. So I went back in to see them, and when I walk in, it's just Pete and Bob and the casting director. And they said, let's, uh, let's do it again. So we do it a second time, and I knew it wasn't as good as it had been previously. And when I was there, there were four other guys. They were all stand-up comics. I recognized all of them from, like, cable TV shows. Right. And while in – I was the last one to go. And while in the waiting room, I could hear the other guys in the room. And I could hear all of them buffooning it. Hey, have you seen my waiter? Really over-the-top, yeah. you know, goofy. And I just – I'm like, nope, I'm right. They're wrong. That doesn't work. I'm right. So I go in to do my thing. And I knew it wasn't as good as the first time. Bob says, that's great. Can we, can we do it again? Can we, can we just read this again? Bob goes, nah, don't worry. We don't have to. Uh, you're the guy we want. Like, in the room. Right. And that, that, that was the only time that's ever happened. Like, you know, a significant role in a film that in the room they say, you're it. So um, that was how it came about. Um, and then it, it changed a little bit. Um before we went on film, I actually learned things, you know, w w without getting too methody, actory yeah. about the whole process. Um, we, they had, um, um, I had longer hair, and they were messing with my haircut. And the base camp was, oh, three or 400 yards from the set. So I was walking back to set to show Pete and Bobby the different haircuts. And I decided, like, um, I'm I'm going as Warren because i got to get used to this way of moving. So I'm just walking down the sidewalk. Two times it happened. 
that people crossed the street so they wouldn't pass me. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like two different people crossed in the middle of the street so they wouldn't rub shoulders with me on the sidewalk. And, of course, I never broke character. I never, yeah. you know. And and so that was really that was really a learning experience for me um, of, you know, everybody's aware of their surroundings. So, uh, so that, um, I knew as we were making the film, there were certain elements like the balls in the zipper and Magnus boobs, Magnus boobs hung in the makeup trailer. So anytime (laughs) anybody stepped up the steps, the boobs would start swinging from the ceiling. Uh, I actually think Lynn kept them. She had them in her, last time I was at her house. She had right. them in a shadow box on the wall. Oh, that's funny. Um, <laughs> but uh, I remember seeing the mock-up for the nuts and the zipper, and I thought, there's no way they're going to use these. There's no way yeah. that that will make the cut. And, of course, it did. Yeah. Um, and 20 years later, we're still laughing about it. And it's funny, with Animal House is the movie that made me want to do this, that made right. me want to be in films yeah. when I was uh, – 14-year-old kid in high school, seeing it in Murray, Kentucky, and I'm like, I, I want to that. I want to be a part of that. And, you know, Animal House was 20 years old when we made Mary. Well, Animal House turned 40 this year, and Mary turned 20. Well, yeah. And I'm fucking old. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they both fell off, yeah, big time. You know, it's, it's tremendous. So the movie comes out. It's, it's a huge hit. Now, I would imagine you would get some recognition, like, on the street, but, I mean, you, you were kind of no. like, no, nothing? Well, with when Deadwood was, was going, um, and I still had the long hair and the beard because right. that was so such a definitive look. Yeah. Um, the, the, yeah. And it still happens. It's mostly Deadwood fans because you can't passively watch Deadwood. No, you can't. You know, it's it, if anybody, you got to invest part of your intellect and your spirit into that show you can't it's not just a passive entertainment um so those deadwood people have more invested in it so hence they they seem to know the characters more intimately um so it does happen occasionally with that um the other stuff no with with mary absolutely not it's actually a funny one god i think mary was still in theaters and janusz kaminski hired me because of Mary, they just offered me a role in, in Lost Souls, this horror okay. movie right. with Monona Ryder. And we were shooting downtown L.A. in this church, and we had to park away from base camp. Um, so I'm in the van with the extras going back to the parking lot. There's this young girl, this like beautiful you know girl right out of college. She's come out to take on Hollywood, and her, her male counterpart, and you, they're new to the business, and they're new to this, and they're, oh, my God, did you see something about Mary? Oh, my God, that's the funniest film. And, and oh, the brother character. Well, I'm sitting right there next to him, and I think, well, well, you know, it's because it's me, you know. <laughs> here. And I said, so, you, uh, you, you like that movie? She said, oh, my God, I love that movie. That's the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. And I said, yeah, cool, because, you know, I'm Warren. And she had she just froze. She looked at me like I just farted in church. (laughs) She literally, without saying anything else, turned her back to me. Oh, boy. And faced the other guy. My first thought was, wait a fucking minute. I'm Warren. And then the second thought was, no. The the role is so convincing. She thinks I'm trying to scam her. 
know, yeah. <laughs> you just you spent all day watching me get shot in the face in this church. Um, is it that far to believe that I'm yeah. actually an actor? Sure. Um, so yeah, that that was the greatest uh, slap in the face compliment I think I've ever had. <laughs> yeah, to- totally. Like, um, there, yeah, there are other movies they would have like New England uh, athletes, you know, Cam Neely, Roger Clemens. Yeah. How did how did they settle on Brett Favre for Mary? Well, they had I originally they had approached Grant Hill about it. Okay. Grant was kind of the next Michael Jordan, you know, right, he's a basketball right, yeah. player. Yeah. Um, and I forget, you know, they're big sports nuts. Right. So in the comedies, they've they've there's been some athlete, usually guys they grew up watching, you know, yeah. from one of their teams. Right. Um, but Favre had just, um, you know, he was at his peak. He'd won all those MVPs, yeah. and I knew that they had approached Grant, <clears throat> and God, the Super Bowl happened. It was the Super Bowl they lost that Brett that the Packers lost to Denver. Um, and then it was like a week after the Super Bowl. I said, oh, no, Brett Favre, that quarterback, he's coming to do it. Um, so I'm not sure how they, they chose Brett. Yeah. It's just, right. you know, he was so affable on camera in the interviews, and that's really how he is. Yeah. Um, that was it. Yeah, I, if they made it like five years later, it probably would have been Tom Brady. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we went to see them. They, Monday Night Football, the Pats played uh, the Dolphins. Okay. Monday Night Football, and it was um, – oh, oh, God. Um, name just completely escaped. Their big star QB before they drafted Brady. Oh, um, Bledsoe. It was Bledsoe. Yeah. Um, and so Bledsoe had a great game, and then when they let him go, like I think the next season, I thought, what? How the hell you let that guy go for a fifth-round draft pick? Are you shitting me? Yeah. It was Tom Brady. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm, a, I'm a big Jet fan, so uh, the, they knocked – the Jets knocked out Bledsoe one game, and then Brady came in, and then the rest is history, you know? <laughs> well, with the Jets, my childhood hero was Joe Namath. Joe Namath. Love Joe Namath. We had a mutual friend. He was huge into something about Mary. They okay. told him, oh, that guy, that, that Warren guy, he loved – Joe sent me a football. I have a signed football from Joe oh, that's Namath. awesome. That's awesome. I got one, and then Bob Greasy – Okay. Because that Warren's house, the exterior where the piggyback ride scene is, yeah, that's Bob Greasy's house in Miami. Oh, wow. Okay. And so we were filming at Bob's house. And, of course, you're not supposed to ask. Broder guys like, fuck that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. I got a Favre football. I got a Bob Greasy football and a Joe Namath football all from that movie. That's awesome. That, that's awesome. But, Earl, this was great. Thank you for a few minutes. I can't wait to sure see thing, you Wood. And uh, best of luck with everything. All right. Thanks. Talk to you later. And a special thanks to Earl for joining us today. Can't wait for the Deadwood movie coming in May. If you haven't watched Deadwood, go binge it. Such a great show. You can follow him on Twitter at WEarlBrown. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at the first level 19 Be sure to like the page of Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes. Check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes? Not a problem. You can find the show on SoundCloud, also on Podbean. A new episode of Living My Youth comes out every Wednesday. We'll see you next week.